Hello, I'm Carol, and this is Sound News, broadcasting from the Old Man's Studio in Church Street, Portadown. Please note, a magazine will follow this recording. This production is for week ending Saturday the 23rd of July. On behalf of everyone here on the Craig Avon Talking newspaper team, welcome to this week's programme. We only have one paper this week, and the headlines from the Portadown Times... New Play Park is a step closer as plans are approved. Now, uh, our first story. Armagh City, Bambridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Planning Committee has approved plans to bring a new play area to the outskirts of Portadown. Lodged by the council, the application seeks permission to erect a play area with play equipment and a two-metre-high Palladian mesh perimeter fence at lands to the rear of 106C Moit Road, Scott Street. At present, the site comprises a grassed area with a number of pieces of playground equipment, but the plans will see this area upgraded. The overall play area measures 281 square metres, and will be set on a resin-bound rubber mulch surfacing. In total, there are 13 pieces of playground equipment to be installed in the new play area. These are a large adventure-themed play unit, an inclusive wheelchair roundabout, an inclusive pod swing, a swing set with one flat seat and one zero-G seat, with lockable harness, a four-seat seesaw, and accessible spring rocker, a gigantic rock, paper, scissors, visual tactile sensory play panel. Also, also to be included are a gigantic four-in-a-row visual tactile, tactile sensory play panel, a shake-rattle-roll auditory sensory sound wheel panel, a virtual ozo tube chime auditory sensory play panel, a wheel kaleidoscope tactile visual sensory play panel, a sensory social talk tube set of two, and an inclusive play unit. A litter bin and two eco-plastic seating benches with back and armrests are also included in the, in the proposals. Council officers are content that the proposal com complies with all relevant planning policy and recommended the committee approve it. Councillor Sam Nicholson asked how many pieces of the playground equipment are accessible for wheelchair users. An officer told the meeting she did not know the exact number but a number of pieces of play equipment have been identified for accessibility. Querying the safety in terms of access to the site, Councillor Peter Lavery noted that if a child wanted to use the play equipment, they would have to go through an industrial type area and asked if officers considered the safety in terms of the access to the site. An officer confirmed the site is accessible from the residential area 
immediately adjacent to the playground and told the chamber of the park will be secured by the Palladian fencing and gates. There is a filling station further along to the north of the site and there is adjacent car parking beside it but there is accessibility to the playground from the residential area without having to go across the vehicular, the vehicular areas, said the officer. I would imagine council selected the site because of the existing play area and to upgrade the equipment as the equipment currently in place is not as accessible and it does not look fairly dated, and it does look fairly stated. Councillor Sam Nicholson proposed the recommendation to approve the application, and this was seconded by Councillor Peter Lavery, Lavery, and the committee voiced its approval. Alliance MLA Oin Tennyson on, has welcomed the planning approval. He said, I am delighted that an upgrade for the play park in Scott Street is one step closer following planning approval at Council earlier this month. Hopefully, construction on the new play park will be completed by the end of the year. This marks a significant uh, investment for the area, and the new inclusive play equipment in particular is welcome. This will be an important amenity for a growing village with lots of young families. And now we have the rotochemist. During the week ahead, urgent prescriptions will be dispensed at the following addresses, starting with Portadown. On Sunday the 24th of July, the chemist is Boots of Thomas Street, open from 11am to 12 noon. Next week, from Monday the 25th of July, the chemist is Orchard of Mandeville Street, open until 7pm. There is no rotochemist in Portadown after Wednesday. Lurgan residents can collect prescribed medicines on Sunday the 24th of July. The chemist is Partridge of High Street, open from 7 until 8pm. And next week, from Monday the 25th of July, the chemist is McKegney of North Street, open until 7pm. There is no rotochemist in Lurgan on Wednesday and none in either town on Saturday. Sunday opening applies in both towns for public holidays. ABC's Lord Mayor has spoken of his pride in the borough's independent retailers as the search for Northern Ireland's High Street Heroes, High Street Heroes officially begins. The campaign affords customers an online vote to choose their favourite independent retailer and overall local high street. Retail Northern Ireland's campaign ensures, ensures the service independent traders bring to the high street is rightfully recognised and provides encouragement to our retailers despite the challenges they face. The independent retailers bring a mix of tradition and diversity to our high streets and that is something that deserves to be celebrated. It is the character and service provided by independent retailers that continue to bring shoppers to our high street daily. Votes can be cast across 11 different categories. Best convenience store, best coffee shop, 
best healthcare retailer, best fashion retailer, best butcher, best deli, best homeware retailer, best forecourt petrol station, best off-license, high street of the year, independent retailer employee of the year, plus overall independent retailer chosen from the winners. Retail Northern Ireland Chief Executive Glyn Roberts said, the High Street Heroes Northern Ireland Awards are a brilliant celebration of the huge contribution uh, independent retailers make to our local high streets and the economy. High Street Heroes Northern Ireland give consumers, com consumers the opportunity to vote for their favourite independent retailer and High Street and will provide a much needed boost to Northern Ireland's retailers. To give your local independent retailers their recognition, they deserve place. They deserve a place. Upper Ban MLA and UUP leader Doug Beatty has predicted the passing of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill will drive Brussels back to the negotiating table with the UK. Welcoming its support so far from a majority of MPs as the legislation progresses through the House of Commons, Mr Beatty said the bill would be a driver and agitator for intense, focused negotiations between the UK government and the EU. Describing the legislation as inevitable, he added, however, it would be naive to describe the passing of this bill as a victory or that it will be a panacea to all the problems created by the protocol. What we need is real-time political action. Unless enacted, the protocol bill won't address the issues facing Northern Ireland. The best solution remains in a negotiated settlement between the United Kingdom and the EU to try and undo the harm created by a bad Brexit deal for Northern Ireland, which damages the Belfast Agreement and underlines our devolved institutions. On fresh UK-EU protocol discussions, Mr Beatty said, this cannot be a one-sided negotiation process and the UK government's proposals, which the Ulster Unionist Party has directly fed into, deserve as much level-headed consideration as others. Mr Beatty said the UUP had been consistent in its opposition to the NI protocol since its inception in October 2019. While some political parties were welcoming the government's proposals as a serious and sensible way forward, or claiming that customs posts in Northern Ireland didn't affect our sovereignty, he said the Ulster Unionist Party immediately rejected them. We saw them for what they were, undermining trade with our biggest market, the rest of the United Kingdom, and damaging the Belfast Agreement upon which our devolved institutions operate. The protocol was a monumental strategic political blunder negotiated and facilitated by the UK government and those who surrendered basic principles. There should never have been checks on medicines or foodstuffs coming into Northern Ireland from the rest of our own country. Just to put the record straight, despite what has been claimed by some political parties, the EU, the situation with medicines has not been resolved. There have been steps in the right direction, but they don't go far enough. 
Mr Beatty added that unionism now needed to focus on long-term strategic political gain rather than short-term political sloganism. Once ranked Northern Ireland's unhappiest when it came to how their local council asked them to recycle, ABC Borough residents are now the province, province's most content, a new survey suggests. Conducted across Northern Ireland's 11 local authorities in March this year, the Lucid Talk poll credits the boroughs with the highest approval um, province-wide, with 83% of householders happy with arrangements, compared to just 48% when last surveyed in 2019. Inherited from the legacy councils, different systems for collection of dry recyclables operated across the borough until 2021. 85% of the 9,563 residents who responded to council consultation wanted a green bin which allowed for commingled collection of dry recyclables, including glass, in one receptacle. This year's survey shows just 1%, which is a reduction of 14%, of householders saying they still place glass directly into their general waste bin. It is patently obvious that if we make recycling easy for householders, they will recycle more. This is evident from the meteoric change in householder sentiment in the Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon Council area. The council listened to their householders and the subsequent harmonisation of all 87,000 households onto the same convenient recycling system has resulted in 83% of householders stating that they are now happy with their recycling service, up from 48% in 2019 and 80% of Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon council householders say they now recycle everything they can, with only 1% now saying they put glass in their mutual black bin, municipal black bin. If the council reverted to the old system of recycling in separate small boxes, 42% of householders stated they would recycle less. It is important that not a single survivor of institutional abuse in Northern Ireland loses out on compensation. DUP Upper Band MLA Diane Dodds has said. In common with other areas in, Port in Northern Ireland, this must be victim-centred and we owe it to them to ensure they not only receive compensation, but that it is a system which meets their needs. There is a review of the redress process underway, and we need to see that completed, and the new recommendations that will flow from it in order to judge how progress has been made. I also underscored with the Commissioner the need to highlight this scheme to survivors. No one who has been affected by this should miss out. More than £24 million has already been paid out to applicants for a redress process for survivors of historical institutional abuse in the province. 
The payments were a core recommendation from the Historical Institutional Abuse Inquiry, which examined allegations of child abuse at 22 residential institutions run by religious, charitable, and state organizations between 1922 and 1995. Disappointed by plans to put internet safety laws on hold, Carla Lockhart has nevertheless said it's important to get the legislation right. It's understood the online safety bill's progress through Parliament has been delayed until a new Prime Minister takes office. With its onus on social media and other platforms to find and remove harmful content from their sites, with an emphasis on protecting children, the bill has been hailed as a milestone for tech sector regulation. Upper Ban MP Miss Lockhart, who has long been pressing for legislation to protect people from online abuse, of which she has been a victim, said that while she was disappointed by the delay, it was important to strike a balance between protecting freedom of speech and preventing abuse. The NSPCC has described the bill as a crucial piece of legislation to protect children by forcing the hand of tech firms to get their house in order. Meanwhile, fresh speech, free speech campaigners have said the bill could lead to censorship in requiring the removal of content designated legal but harmful. Campaign group Index on Censorship welcomed the delay in respect of what it described as a fundamentally broken bill that would give tech executives control over what ordinary people could say online and actually undermine safety by forcing platforms to delete evidence of online abuse. Kilikamain Multi-Use Games Area has reopened after repair work to fix damage caused to the facility by vandalism. It has been confirmed. On Tuesday, June the 21st, a spokesperson for Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Avonborough Council took to social media to let the public know the facility was closed to facilitate essential maintenance. However, Councillor Julie Flaherty expanded upon this message, explaining the required work is a result of vandalism. Now, several weeks later, a council spokesperson has confirmed the damage has been repaired and the Killicomain facility has once again reopened. We are happy to report Killicomain Muga has now reopened, said the spokesperson. We apologise for any inconvenience caused. Alliance councillor Jessica Johnson has welcomed the recent launch of a public consultation on the provision of allotments across Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigalvin Borough. The survey seeks to gauge interest among local residents on the development of allotments in the borough. Community allotments can have a positive impact on people's mental health and well-being and on the local environment, said councillor Johnson. We have some fantastic allotment providers in the borough. However, there is clearly huge demand and it would be brilliant to see greater council support for existing providers and potentially even some new council-owned sites. The issue of allotment provision was first raised by my colleague Ian Tennyson at the Environmental Services Committee in September of last year. So it is fantastic to see progress on the matter. 
The survey will come as good news to many local residents who wish to grow their own food but don't currently have access to appropriate facilities. Residents have eight weeks to complete the survey, including suggesting possible sites for future allotments, so I would encourage as many people as possible to take part in the consultation. Once the online survey has been completed, Council will analyse the results to determine if there is demand for additional allotment provision and put plans in place to meet that demand. Death in the Community Alexander Nee Collins, 19th of July 2022, peacefully in Hockley Mews Nursing Home, formerly of Derry Clone Gardens, Portadown. Doreen Elizabeth, beloved wife of Kenny, cherished mum of Shirley, Wendy and Neil, mother-in-law of Brian and Robbie, much-loved nanny of Ben and Evie, also a loving, loving sister of Shirley and the late Stuart, House and funeral strictly private. Family flowers only, please. Medlow, Gordon, 4th of July 2022. Lovingly remembered by dear sisters, brother and brother-in-law. Yvonne, Sandra, Ian and Jim and the late Elizabeth. Sheila and Jennifer and the wider family circle. Quinn, Billy. Precious memories of my brother Billy. Red Lion Road, Portadown, died 10th of July 2022. Venard Thomas, July the 17th, 2022, peacefully at his home, Tullyhue Park, Tandragee. Thomas Wellington is in his 103rd year. Beloved husband of the late Margaret, Peggy, much loved father of Abraham, Stuart, Margaret, Thomas, Edward, Cheryl, Marlene, Samuel and the late Jim and Sylvia, dear father-in-law, devoted grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, brother and uncle, interred Ballymore Parish Churchyard, Tandragree, on Tuesday the 19th of July. Wiley, Larry, Royal Irish Fusiliers, OCA, the officers and members of the above branch deeply regret the death of their esteemed comrade Larry. Tender and deepest sympathy to all the family circle. And now we are at sport. The Angela McCabe Cup tournament is in its fourth year, with sights set on raising even more funds for charity. Angela died in March 2019 after succumbing to neuroendocrine cancer. Family and friends are raising funds for the Southern Area Hospice in appreciation for the care and support it provided. Angela's husband Frank and the couple's children, Emma and Michael, are keen to raise as much money as possible. Frank is a former, is, is, is a former player for Craig Evans City Football Club whose ground will play host to the August 7th tour tournament from 1 to 4 p.m. It costs £10 per player and everyone is welcome. Food and refreshments will be available afterwards. A Just Giving page has been set up for those who may wish to donate. It reads, When someone is taken from us, it's so important to keep their spirit alive. 
In honor of Angela, we would like to give you back to those who helped in her fight and finally in her fight and finally find peace from our pain. Every day there are people who, whose work is to help others who, just like Angela, fought bravely through it all. Her last wish was to be in the hospice. The care and support was so much appreciated. However, many more will need the hospice services. So with every single donation raised, it will help to ensure that our loved ones are cared for and have the guidance and support when they need it most. Lockall Ladies Captain Pauline McArdle and club members present Patrick Hart of Pauline's chosen charity, PIPS, that is Public Initiative for, for Prevention of Suicide and Self-Harm, with a cheque for £1,250 of donations made in respect of her successful Captain's Day recently. PIPS provides support to individuals who are considering or have at some point considered ending their own lives and also supports families who have been touched by self-harm or suicide. Pauling thanks everyone who donated or in any way contributed towards her Captain's Day. Can you rock the legs and lock? Upcoming St. Peter's AC event promising something for everyone. St. Peter's Athletics Club Lurgan is hosting a running event at Craig Evans South Lake Leisure Centre with prize money up for grabs in all races. The event is to get underway at 9.30am on Sunday, August 14th with three options open to those taking part. The route for all events is flat and fast and the setting idyllic encompassing both lakes with the half marathon taking in the beautiful Oxford Island trails. There is prize money for all races with £200 for the male and female winners of the half marathon. Proceeds from the event will help with the club's training facilities and raise funds for their charity partner, the Southern Area Hospice. For more details and registration, go to Athletics NI Events page and search for Rock the Lakes and Lock. A squad of 12 from Portadown Amateur Swimming Club have continued the club's successful 2021-22 season by excelling at last week's Irish National Division 2 competition 2022. This All-Ireland 25-metre format gala was held at the University of Limerick Sport Arena between July the 6th and 10th and involved swimmers aged 12 years and above. The competition involved 94 swimming clubs and comprised heats during morning and midday sessions with finals for the fastest 10 qualifiers from the age group heats each evening over the five days of competition. The Portadown squad of 12 swimmers was the club's largest ever representation at this competition and included Scarlett Watt and Gracie McNeil, 12, Anna Peskova, 13, Gracie Martin, Emer MacDonald, Sven Burkamp, Christian Davison and Mark Emerson, 14, 
Leon Ruddy, 15, Jessica Venard, 16, and Max Burkamp and Joshua Heron, 18. Only Emer, Jessica, Max and Joshua had participated at this competition in previous years, so the majority of the 12-strong squad was inexperienced at this level. The squad were supported by club coaches John MacDonald, Frank Burkamp, Alan Vernard, Greg McNeil and Lily May Ruddy, club committee members and parents. Over the five days of action, all Portadown ASC swimmers did fantastically well and represented the club in style and with pride. Many personal best times were not only being achieved during the meet, but times were being smashed. The club had more swimmers in finals than ever before, and the superb medal return of eight, one gold, four silver and three bronze, courtesy of Gracie, Max and Joshua, meant that Portadown were very well represented during the medal presentations. The experiences gained at this competition for both the swimmers and coaches will help build the club to provide further success at this level and above. And now, general news. Letters and parcels are set to go undelivered across Northern Ireland and other parts of the UK after postal workers voted to go on strike. The ballot results from the Communication Workers Union, the CWU, announced on Tuesday afternoon means a strike is now likely in the middle of next month unless a pay deal can be reached beforehand. The trade union ballot was held across the UK and returned a 97.6 vote in favour of strike action from a 77% turnout of members. Erlen Massey, CWU Regional Secretary for Northern Ireland, said, said that unless a breakthrough happens in the talks in the next few weeks, notice will be given early next month to Royal Mail of the intention to follow through with the strike. The reason we are calling our members out to strike, she said, is because Royal Mail made profits of £750 million. Now they have chosen to give the shareholders £400 million in dividends. They have chosen to impose a miserable 2% pay rise on our members, and they have chosen to give themselves bonuses. Simon Thompson, the Chief Executive Officer of Royal Mail, got a £140,000 bonus for reaching only 17% of his target. We are left with no choice. The vote is in. It's a vote of no confidence in Royal Mail, who couldn't have made better choices and didn't. The profits that they've made now were only made possible through the sheer hard work, commitment and service from our members to the public all through the pandemic. And they are still to this day continuing to do the same. We refuse to allow our members to be undervalued. The vote is in and Royal Mail need to recognise the true value of our members. We are open to talks, but they will be getting their two-week notice. 
if they don't come back and talk to us. They will be getting their two-week notice and that should be served around early August. A Portadown author said she's thrilled at being chosen last weekend as the winner of a prestigious award for her debut novel. Susie Hull from Market Hill won the Romantic Novelist Association's annual Joan Hesseon Award for 2022 with her novel In This Foreign Land. The award is for authors whose debut novels have gone through the RNA's new writer's scheme and are accepted for publication. Sponsored by Dr David Hesion, OBE, in honour of his late wife Joan, who was a novelist, RNA member and supporter of its new writer's scheme, the award showcases a variety of debut novels with the romantic fiction genre. Susie originally dreamt of being a ballet dancer, but instead trained as a Montessori nursery teacher and has spent the last 30 years working with children. She fits her writing in at the weekend and during school holidays. Kate Burke also praised the winning novel. Susie's novel is so evocative with a strong sense of place and time. We all learnt something new about Cairo in this period and felt completely transported there. Melissa Oliver, the organiser of the Joan Hesian Award and the winner of the award in 2020, described Susie's, Susie's novel as a beautifully evocative debut with incredible attention to historical detail. The award ceremony was held on Saturday, July 16th at Harper Adams University, Shropshire, as part of the RNA's annual conference. King, Kingspan continues support for AANI. A team from local company Kingspan Water and Energy paid a visit to the Air Ambulance NI AANI headquarters to celebrate their total fundraising efforts. Based out of the Kingspan site on the Guildford Road, Portadine, the team raised the sum of £4,183 through a variety of employee events including barbecues and, and, in, and internal fundraisers as part of their 2021 charity partnership. This sum also sup supplemented an earlier just giving donation of £6,400 in May 2021 following staff participation in the Belfast Relay mar Marathon. Representing the cohort Accounts Manager Heather Walker explained why they chose to support the worthy charity. The Air Ambulance Northern Ireland is a charity so close to many of, of our employees' hearts. As a local company, Kingspan Water and Energy rec recognize the vital service provided by the Air Ambulance and we were delighted to offer a small token in support of their hard work. Amy Henshaw regional fundraising co coordinator for the charity said thank you so much to the entire team at Kingspan for their wonderful fundraising efforts and enthusiasm during during our charity partnership over the last year and a half through their continued support and terrific contribution they have enabled the air ambulance medical crew to continue bringing emergency pre-hospital care directly to casualties across Northern Ireland, and for that, we are extremely grateful. 
Around 6,000 pounds was raised for a variety of worthy causes in Loch Gall's groundbreaking recent Secret Gardens weekend. To thank those who opened their gardens, Loch Gall and District Improvement Association held a supper in the Loch Gall WI Hall for all who had participated. Cheques representing the proceeds of ticket sales were presented to two of the main beneficiaries. Lynn Cowan, fundraiser for the Children's Heartbeat Trust, thanked the organisers for their generous donation and said it would go towards supporting the families of children in Northern Ireland who are born with heart disease. Wendy George, representing Loch Gall Parish Church, said they would put their donation towards their building fund. The church building had recently had major repairs to its roof. Funds had also been raised for various causes by selling refreshments and at stalls selling plants, books, crafts, wood turnings and other items. The Secret Gardens event took place on June the 18th and 19th. John Faulkner, on behalf of the organising group within the Loch Gall and District Improvement Association, estimated that well over 800 visitors had been welcomed to 24 gardens in the village over the weekend. He said feedback had been extremely positive from the visitors. Even more revealing, perhaps, was the response of residents with the overwhelming view that it had been a great way to bring people together in a joint project. After the gloom of the COVID period, it had been exhilarating to take part in a joint project which had so many benefits, both to the village and its residents and to the wider community, John commented. Other members of the organising group were Mary Walker, Kathleen Orr, Heather Coulter and Gillian Faulkner. To conclude the proceedings, Arnold Hatch, chairperson of the Loch Gall and uh, District Improvement Association, praised them for arranging such a successful event. He also thanked everyone else who had taken part in opening their garden, selling tickets and helping to spread the word. Ama City, Banbridge and Craig Avon Borough Council's Planning Committee has approved a planning application to bring three new homes to Market Hill. Launched by agent C.T. Lindsay, Chartered Architects, on behalf of applicant Ian Johnson, the application seeks permission to build three homes on the Mahon Road, Seabokan Road in Market Hill. The application site is bounded by Mahon Court, Eden Rise and Eden Court. The application was discussed at a recent meeting of the committee where a planning officer advised the application had been called in by Alderman Gareth Wilson and had generated more than four refusals during its processing. In total, there were 19 third-party objections, one petition with eight signatures and one letter of support, said the planning officer. The letter of support was received after the application was reduced from an initial proposal of 12 semi-detached dwellings to three detached dwellings, and officers are of the opinion the revised scheme complies with all relevant planning policy and that the main points of objection 
have been overcome. Originally, 12 semi-detached dwellings were sought, but the scheme has been reduced on a number of occasions following objections. Permission is sought for three dwellings and the proposed dwellings are all detached with three bedrooms and large gardens. It will be finished in brick and render, reflecting the area, and the properties will be carefully sited to ensure they do not overlook each other or opposing houses. What is proposed are high-quality houses in a convenient lo location, and the application is in accordance with all relevant planning policy. Councillor Sam Nich Nicholson asked if the objector to the three dwellings had withdrawn their objection and was told that was the case. However, the planning officer confirmed the other objections had not been withdrawn and although they were made against the proposals for more than three houses, they must still be considered. Whilst this objection has been withdrawn, in theory, the other objections still stand, and because they still stand, we have to consider them. But we are of the view the plans do overcome all these concerns, the planning officer said. Councillor Kieran Toman inquired about the waste water treatment facilities on site. He was told that originally plans were in place to include septic tanks. However, Northern, Northern Ireland Water have since confirmed the local wastewater treatment plant does have capacity for three detached homes. Commenting on the application, Councillor Nic Nicholson said it is clear there has been substantial negotiation on this one and said he was of the view the application will provide additional homes in a sought-after area. It is pretty clear from the presentation there has been substantial negotiation on this one, he said. The initial proposal was for 12 homes, and that is now down to three, and the application is in accordance with all the planning guidance. I know the area well and it will provide additional homes and a sought-after area. I think this is a thorough and detailed report, and this is a good enough scheme. Councillor Nicholson then proposed the application was approved, and this proposal was seconded by Councillor Kieran Toman, and the committee voiced its approval. Dale Farms Dramona Cheddar Cheese has been named Ireland's best and one of the best in the UK in a record sweep of awards. The Portadown's Artisan Bally Lisk of Armagh Soft Cheese has also won in the UK awards for quality and outstanding taste. The two producers were recognised at the prestigious International Cheese and Dairy Awards for 2022 at Staffordshire County Showground in Britain. Dale Farm took the Gold Award for Irish Cheddar, any variety, and an impressive host of awards for its range of cheddars produced in one of Europe's most modern cheese plants at Dunman Bridge near Cookstown, including Best Irish Cheese and a trophy for its mature variety. 
Dale Farm and Ballylisk were the only ANI cheese producers to win awards in the recent International Cheese and Dairy Awards in Staffordshire, one of the world's most important competitions in the international industry. ICDA is the most important event in the UK dairy industry's annual calendar. Dale Farm, based in Belfast, is Northern Ireland's biggest farmers' cooperative with an extensive portfolio of dairy products, especially cheddar cheese. The cooperative exports its cheese to many international markets. Family-owned Ballylisk of Armagh from Portadown gained gold, silver and bronze awards at the annual event. The small company, which sources its milks from the Wrights family's pedigree dairy farm at Tandragee and processes it at a modern plant outside Portadown, gained gold for its oat cake biscuits for cheese and other awards for its original and smoked triple rose soft cheeses. The awards were part of Love Cheese Live, one of the UK's largest and most influential food and drink festivals, which was held as part of the Staffordshire County Show. Winning one of the coveted awards means being a part of an elite group and the 125-year-old tradition of the very best cheese, especially in the UK and Republic of Ireland. Success at the event means high profile for cheesemongers, delis, retailers and food service companies across the British Isles and even further afield. Two more unions ballot for council staff strike. Two more trade unions are balloting council workers on possible strike action. It recently emerged. Staff in the RMA, Banbridge and Craigavon Council who are members of the NIPSA and GMB trade unions are being asked if they are willing, willing to go on strike over pay and terms and conditions. Ballots in other council areas could also be Im imminent. Unless ongoing talks progress favorably, unofficial with NIPSA has, has said. A GMB official, meanwhile, said there was potential for further ballots in other areas in the near, near future. A trade union source said strike action by Unite members remained a possibility at all 11 councils, but stressed that pay offers, offers being put forward differed between councils and could therefore lead to diff different approaches. The RMA, Bambridge and Gregavon ballots by NIPSA and GMB centre on a dispute over the soaring cost of living and what they say is a disparity in terms and conditions arising from, their, from the merger of the old council areas several years ago. NIPSA officer Kevin Kelly said the dispute had been seven years in the making with staff in some areas on different salary grades due to the failure to harmonize terms and conditions across the whole council following the 2015 reform of local government. Mr. Kelly said the earliest possible date for strike action would be the middle of next month. Employers need to address the cost of living crisis, but this is a dispute that has been seven years in the making. He said tiers one to four 
have all had their harmonization, but our members are still waiting. Alan Perry from the GMB union said, employers have failed to address the cost of living within the public sector right across the board and our members are struggling with a number using food banks to survive. A Portadown woman has been posthumously awarded an award for her dedication to local charity, the Society of St Vincent de Paul. Molly Murphy passed away suddenly last November and her death had a profound effect not only on the shop volunteers but also on the customers who had known her for the 20 or so years she had worked in the Portadown clothes shop. Molly knew everyone by their first name, always had a big smile on her face and was friendly with everyone. She volunteered in the shop four days a week and was like a fixture behind the till. The SVP annual retail awards followed a one-day conference which discussed how retail can be community-based, help reduce poverty and operate in in a really sustainable manner. There are over 234 St Vincent de Paul shops throughout Ireland trading under the name Vincent's. Vincent's shops are a hugely important aspect of the service SVP provides to those who seek its assistance. Not only do the shops provide goods at affordable prices and help reconnect people disconnected by poverty, they also provide an income source for the society which is directed back into the local communities. Vincent's are also committed to the concept of reduce, reuse and recycle by recycling 97.5% of donated items. Dermot McGilloway, SVP National Retail Development Manager said, this conference provided the opportunity for the volunteers and staff throughout our network to reflect on the importance of Vincent's in our communities by providing a great customer service ethic which also generates financial support to their local conferences and at the same time taking visible action on sustainability. Health Minister Robin Swam this week announced publication of the Mental Health Strategy Delivery Plan for 2022-23. It sets out the prioritised work streams under the 2021-31 Mental Health Strategy published last year alongside a 10-year funding plan. The strategy was clear that while some work streams could be progressed concurrently, it was not possible to start implementation of all actions simultaneously. The department asked respondents to public consultation on the draft mental health strategy to prioritise their top five actions. The feedback has been considered alongside a range of other factors to help shape thinking around what can and what should be progressed in 2022-23. While a funding position has not yet been confirmed, for 2022-23 and beyond, said Mr Swan. The plan has been developed in order to outline the implementation work that can be taken forward 
within existing resources and to ensure that full implementation of other priority actions contained therein can commence should additional funding be made available during the 2022-23. The Minister stressed implementation of the mental health strategy is subject to the provisional of additional funding to my department. It is therefore critical that a budget is confirmed and allocated at the earliest opportunity. Mr Swan said the mental health strategy had been co-produced with a broad range of stakeholders and he remained fully committed to the co-design and co-production. He said on Monday, the principles published today do not serve to supersede <coughs> existing guidance, but rather are intended to, as a statement of intent regarding our commitment to continue, continued co-design and co-production throughout the Im implementation of the strategy. Three of ALMAC's Chemical Sciences Higher Level Apprentices have been named as finalists in this year's World Skills UK National Competition. Abigail McGill and Anastasia Couveton from Sciences Business Unit and Victoria Kurwaska, who works, with, who works within Pharma Services, are currently completing their HLA programme through ALMAC's partnership with South Southern Regional College, which provides a range of apprentice programmes for students interested in a career at ALMAC. They are among 500 finalists who will be competing for gold, silver and bronze at the competitions taking place across the UK in November. Those who are successful will then have the opportunity to represent the UK at the Skills Olympics in France in 2024. Tanya Graham, Sciences Head of Analytical Services, said, Congratulations, Abby, Victoria and Anastasia, on getting this far in the World Skills UK Development Programme. We are really proud of your achievement and wish you all the best at the upcoming finals. ALMAC's apprenticeship programmes enable students to develop the technical knowledge and skills they need to support projects at different stages in drug development. The support and mentorship we offer our apprentices, as well as the opportunity to take part in competitions like World Skills, really helps our apprentices develop valuable interpersonal skills and grow in confidence in their respective roles. Neighbourhood Watch Information. The latest local Neighbourhood Watch newsletter is now available from the RMR Bambridge and Greg Avon Council website and is full of useful tips on home and personal security of particular relevance to the summer months. As of this week, anyone in Portadown who needs a fit note for work or benefit reasons won't have to see a GP, but can obtain one from health professionals such as authorised nurses, occupational therapists, pharmacists and physiotherapists. And on that note, we come to closing remarks. Our thanks to the team of volunteers who edited and recorded this week and to Michaels for collecting the Portadown Times and to the Presbyterian Church for the use of the studio. 
Editing the news this week were William and Patricia. Our technician was William. And reading with me this week were Roberta, John and Nathan. From the newsroom at the Old Manse, this is Carol signing off. Thank you for spending time with us. All our good wishes for the week ahead. And our team will be back with you in four weeks' time. Please remember to turn your wallet and memory stick. A magazine follows this recording. Sound News is a Craig Avon talking newspaper production. And again, apologies for no Lurgan mail. The supplier did not receive any from the printer. Hello, it's good to have your company. In a few minutes, Portadown members of Business and Professional Women Northern Ireland, joined by members of Sroptimus International Portadown, will record the July 2022 edition of Science Friendly Talking Magazine. From the heart of Portadown, with the assistance from many of our volunteers at the Old Man Studio, Church Street, you're listening to Craig Avon Talking Newspaper, a registered charity with over 40 local volunteers who help out each month. Before we start, a reminder of some housekeeping. Having listened to our news and magazine, you're reminded to promptly return the recording that you're listening to now in the padded wallet provided with it. Please enclose any comments about the service our volunteers provide in writing along with the USB pen drive. And of course, to guarantee a prompt delivery of your next edition, please remember to reverse the address label before setting off for the postbox. This week we're featuring uh, Country Legends collection from A Sunday Life CD for our Song of the Week and some, and some extracts from recent UK and Irish newspapers, magazines and much more. Singing the same old song Why I know every crack In the dirty sidewalks of Broadway You know where hustle's the name of the games And nice guys get washed away Like the snow and the rain And don't you know there's been a load of compromising On the road to my horizon But you see I want to be where the light is shining on me tonight Like them rhinestone cowboys, yeah Riding out on a horse in a star-spangled rodeo The rhinestone cowboys Getting cards and letters from people I don't even know Yes, and offers coming over 
Hello, it's Jackie McLaughlin here from uh, BPW Portadown. Yes, from BPW Northern Ireland and Sir Optimus, so I don't know which hat I'm wearing tonight. And we also have Retha. I'm from Sir Optimus Portadown. And our technician, John, with us. Good evening and a warm welcome on a very boiling <laughs> evening. <laughs> on a very hot day. So I was just about to say, what have we all been doing to try and keep cool today? This is the day when we could be breaking records. I think this uh, is our hot day today. Yeah. So it's a day for sitting in the garden with the radio under an umbrella. I think. Well, yeah. I had to take the dog for a walk early on this morning, but she's sort of been hiding in the house ever since. Uh -huh. Rita, what did you do in this hot day? Hiding inside. Yeah. Any sign of sunshine and I'd burn. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking to the, the fair-skinned members of the of the thing. But my daughter was talking to me there on the phone and she lives in Manchester and she's sitting at 34 and a half degrees at mm. 7 o'clock at night. So she's worrying about melting tonight. And she's in an apartment? Uh, no, she has a house, so it's not just so bad. She used to be in a flat, which would have been even worse. Mm. So... It's July, it's sunny, and I'm going to start off with a bit out of Ireland's own, which is my all-time favourite go-to when I'm coming to the talking newspaper. And it's about the art of doing nothing. And as a retired teacher, I can really sympathise with this uh, first statement anyway. The art of doing nothing. In the month of July, the schools are closed. Teachers are on holidays. Recovering, some would plead. And there is a general slowdown in activity. Unless, of course, you're working in the cafe side of the hospitality industry, where staff are run off their feet, busy about serving the full Irish or the Americano or latte to eager customers on outdoor tables. I am the beneficiary of their labours, as I like to have an outdoors coffee. And sit to my heart's content and listen to the great pageantry of the world move by. The activity is among the most enjoyable ways of doing nothing. Just sitting, looking and listening. It is one of the gifts which come with being retired. At least so it seems to me. For occasionally I meet other pensioners who say, don't know what to do with myself. Or, the long summer evenings drag. Or, I have too much time on my hands. I'm loath to judge anyone's way of living their life. But that attitude strikes me as a failure in imagination or an early loss of interest in life. And it's not that I'm any better than them, just that I find you don't always have to be doing something to give meaning to your life. There's a time when doing nothing is the healthiest thing to do. Doing nothing goes with the flow of the day. It means that whatever you do is okay. And the secret is that you need no reward except the pleasure of doing it. I never wear a watch these days. I find I measure the time, especially in the summer months, by the movement of the sun. I get up when the sun is up, relax when the evening light is declining, but I do keep an eye on the public clocks to be in time for our meals without being too fixed about the times. Lately, I've begun to lose faith in these clocks because I have one because I have to do too much adjusting, sorry. One clock over a bookies is 15 minutes fast. One over a department store is 20 minutes slow. And even the church clock has lost its usefulness to me because it has been stuck on 12.25 for the last few months. Surprised that the priest in charge hasn't got that fixed. At least a stop clock tells me the right time twice a day, as the, as the fabled atomic clock. 
I had a chuckle to myself when I thought I was late coming off the town, thinking that 12.25 was five o'clock. It was just as well that I don't have to be where, when, because I would annoy a person who wants all things measured by the minute and doesn't know how to be doing nothing. Finally, there are a few jobs to be done in the garden. What happens to me is there is that I get completely lost in the activity of transplanting or weeding or thinning out. To be absorbed like that in any activity is a blessing. You end up asking, where has the time gone? Now, I've got another interesting little book here. And it's a pocket history of Ireland. And I think I've read out this before because every time I produce it for any of my English visitors, it disappears and I have to buy another copy. <laughs> because it just is a tiny little book and it's got all sorts of interesting bits and pieces. And as it's the month it is, it's July, I thought there's a little section here about the Williamite War and the Battle of the Boyne. And it's a period of history that I think I did a little bit when I was doing A-level history. We are just talking about my old history teacher there and a photograph of the college. So... He talked about this and it'll help us understand maybe a little bit more about what goes on at the Battle of the Boyne. So when the English government ousted James II in favour of his son-in-law William, the Catholic James Stuart chose to make his stand in Ireland. Following the restoration of Charles II to the throne of England, Scotland and Ireland in 1660, a level of peace returned to Ireland. Charles II repealed some of the harsh Puritan laws and even granted back a small portion of the lands that had been taken from Catholics. He also appointed the tolerant Earl of Ormond as his deputy in Ireland. For the next 25 years, Ireland was able to rebuild. In 1685, Charles II died and his brother James, a devout Catholic, succeeded the throne. The Irish population rejoiced at having their first Catholic monarch in over 100 years. James appointed Richard Talbot as his deputy in Ireland and Talbot set about making Ireland safe, a safe Catholic stronghold for the king. Called Lying Dick Talbot by the Protestant Irish, the new deputy purged the Irish army of Protestants, creating a new force loyal to James Stuart. A year after James II's accession, his English subjects began plotting to replace him with the son-in-law, the Protestant William of Orange. So in 1688, William landed in Devon and the English population rose up to support him. James II fled to France, where Louis XIV saw a chance to strike at his old enemy, William of Orange, now William III of England. He sent James to Ireland with a small French force. And in 1689, James and a small army came ashore at Kinsale. The Williamite War had begun. Richard Talbot had done his job well, and by the time James arrived, only a few places in the north of Ireland held out in support of William, notably Derry and Enniskillen. James Stuart marched to Derry with 30,000 soldiers and demanded surrender. The populace refused, and James's Jacobite army settled into a long siege. For 15 weeks, the city held out until an English fleet fought its way through to relieve the city. Faced with the loss at Derry and the defeat of another Jacobite army at Enniskillen, James retreated back towards Dublin. In June of 1691, William III arrived in Northern Ireland at the head of the largest invading army in Irish history, consisting of English, Dutch, Danish, German and French Huguenot soldiers and sporting a massive artillery train. 
William's army was joined by a thousand loyal Irish troops on its march south towards Dublin. Meanwhile, James Stewart, with his army of around 25,000 Irish and French troops, decided to make his stand along the River Boyne a few miles from Dochera. So, the Battle of the Boyne. The battle commenced... I think that must be a printing error because it says June 1691, but now we all know what, what happened. The battle commenced on the 1st of July 1690, so maybe my wee book isn't so perfect after all. When William used his overwhelming artillery superiority to hammer the Jacobite army, the Williamite choose to cover fire to help ford the river while a diversionary attack on one side of the line drew off James's best troops. James, realising he'd been outmanoeuvred, ordered a general retreat. William let his father-in-law go. Although the Battle of the Boyne was not militarily decisive, it heralded the end of the Jacobite cause. And after the battle, William took Dublin and James once again fled to France. Although the war would drag on for another year, the title of king was no longer in doubt. So there you go. That's a quick resume of what happened at the battle and how we got there. So Retha has some things, I think, to read. I have an article about gardens. Um, it's in Prima, and it's actually Sarah Raven talking about her garden. Gardening is good for us, for our health and our spirits. So time spent in the garden in the next few weeks, when it warms up, I think it's warmed up, <laughs> will make being out there all the better. You want reliability from what you're planting, and that's where I can help. Every year, we trial more than 100 different plants at Perch Hill. That's one of the main roles of our garden, an ornamental trial field. Here are my top tips and recommendations drawn from the best of the old and the cream of the new for all our gardens. The best containers ever. Compact varieties of cut and come again annuals will give you the floriest, longest performing containers for your garden and there is a never increasing range. Try the Cosmos Xena. This is going into several pots per chill as well as prolific flowering long season dahlias such as Totally Tangerine and Happy Single Kiss. With all three, you can cut small bunches to bring inside too. If you, you pick immediately above a pair of leaves, the buds, will, the buds will form below the cut and flower again. It's effectively live heading rather than dead heading and has the same effect, prolonging the show in the garden. The prettiest flowers. Whether gardening for you is an allotment, a huge sweeping plot or a window box, you have to try to growing something for cutting. It, to keep it simple, use my recipe of three ingredients. First, I select the flower I want to play centre stage. I call this my bride. Then I choose a small flower of the same colour to back up the bride, but not compete with her. That's my bridesmaid. I choose my final ingredient for Contrast what I call the gatecrasher to bring the mix to life. This early summer combination has calendula, sweet buff as the bride, phlox, cherry caramel for bridesmaid and dorlock grandiflora as a very delicate gatecrasher. She plays the key contrasting role. In August, try the long flowering salvia viridis, blue Monday as the bride, a geratum blue horizon as the bridesmaid and the velvet green Nicotania lime green as a colour contrast or gatecrasher. That's a win winner too. Or you could skip the bridesmaid combining just two ingre ingredients. Zinnia queenie lime red. 
giving you smoky pink and lime and Benares giant lime to give you a duo of the best cut flowers. The sweetest scents. When it comes to sweet bees, nothing beats the traditional favourite Macutania for scent. It's 10 out of 10 every time in our scent trials, but there are also some exciting and slightly crazy varieties merging on the scene. The first is blue shift is the Blue Shift series. The idea of a blue sweet pea seemed strange to me, but I've follow, fallen for the turquoise lagoon we trialled recently. It opens as mauve, then as the flowers age, they turn an incredible Aegean sea blue. The mix of colour on an arch or TP is to die for. It is 8 out of 10 on the scent scale. Mix it with an indigo variety such as blue velvet and one of the ripples and stipples blue ripple. I'm also excited about growing compact varieties of sweet pea such as Balcony Minuet Purple. It is 7 out of 10 on the scent scale. It doesn't have a huge fragrance but I'm dying to see how it looks at the front of our borders and is cascading out of our massive pots this summer. So that gives you some shopping and some ideas and good, scent, good sense. John's the expert in what we should be planting in the garden, aren't you John? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I should be the <laughs> expert and um, I mean I think it has to be things that you can look after and uh, I would say there's always a couple of days a year when it's very hot or you're away on holiday and things don't get watered mm -hmm. uh, if, if you have window boxes hanging baskets you don't want the hole at the bottom you want the hole halfway up so there's like a reservoir uh, of water. Well, that's a very sensible mm -hmm. idea. Um, and I mean, there are, you know, you're trying to make things easy for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the other one I would tell people is if you have a white house, don't have white flowers. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have a red brick house... <laughs> yeah, don't have that. <laughs> no. Well, funny, you're talking about that Cosmo. It's got a beautiful flower. We have a lot of those at um, Antrim Castle Gardens. Mm -hmm. We have beds of it in the wall garden. Yeah. And it's amazing uh -huh. because they've got the new Dermot Gavin installation. Yeah. And everybody's talking about it. Oh, it's fantastic. It yeah. plays music and bits of it move and trees move and the little bells and things going off. So it's fantastic mm -hmm. to see and listen to. Uh -huh. Very good. So and then as far as flowers go, I think now there is a, a plant called borage. Mm -hmm. and it's no, herb, isn't it? Uh -huh. And if you sow it on some rough ground, you know, in the bottom of a hedge or somewhere mm -hmm. like that. It comes up really nicely. Oh. And they say if you have it near plants that aren't maybe grown that well, it gives them a boost. It's one of these things, you know, we can't scientifically prove it. Right, uh, very good. I have planted them at my house and they give a fantastic show. And I mean, it used to be, well, you can still buy them in a proper shop, but it used to be you could put them onto your... I'll say Amazon or eBay mm -hmm. trolley for a pound, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's now says not we can't deliver to your yeah, area. Yeah, that, that's right. That's so sad, isn't but it? But you can still get it, and it, it does an awful lot of work for your garden. Right. I would say Let's it's you know, it is one of those. I've said it's probably if everybody who's listening <laughs> when we went to the garden centre and asked for borage seeds. <laughs> They might have to supply them for us. They have to supply them, and I mean, I have to say, it's money well spent. It's one time I was talking to an interior designer, and I said, "What mistakes do people make?" And her eyes sort of rolled. And now this is maybe what twenty years ago. She said people put in two big fireplaces, two big sofas, and she felt that 
the makeover programs that the I mean okay the makeover programs were giving people an appetite for doing things but she felt that you know for a very little extra effort and thought they could have had the thing done properly yes, pro- and do it right um, yeah, we can all I have to think about that now as my garden which is now growing uh-huh. well, I, yeah, she's got trees and things forage would definitely be the thing John I have 6,350 uh-huh. trees in my forest now yeah, so you need forage <laughs> but then I mean if the forestry people felt strongly enough about it they would have probably advised yeah, you to, to do it no no I'll, I, uh-huh. but around my hedging I must think about that because mm. if other hedges around yeah. really interesting right so, right Rita, what are you I have another article from it's actually it's real life repair shop okay. <laughs> I like it. can she fix it yes she can it's a this particular article it mentions a lady who has a toy shop toy hospital in Edinburgh she started it did she say she started? No, we don't know that. Um, just uh, her name's Mary Jones, and she founded Lace Toy Hospital in Edinburgh. And thousands of her patients have been given a new lease of life. When our customers come to pick up their toys after a stay with us, they often burst into tears with happiness, just like you see on the TV in the repair shop. It's wonderful to see how. Uh, Important, a much-loved doll or tatty old teddy bear can be to someone. It might be the only thing they still have from their childhood or a link to someone who has passed away. We've had Second World War refugees who fled their homeland with very little apart from a treasured toy that they are now desperate to get restored. So many stories touch our hearts. There was one lovely elderly lady who knocked a treasured porcelain doll off a shelf, smashing it to smithereens. After we had painstakingly put it back together, she sent a letter saying that not only had we fixed it all, but we had also mended her broken heart. At first we just mended soft toys, but then we started getting queries about dolls. Now we have a a team of 12 specialising in everything from mechanical and electrical toys to leather animals. It's fascinating seeing people... It's fascinating seeing the huge variety of things that people are able to fix. I work at creating replicas of toys that, that have been lost, as well as repairing knitted animals and bears, often where pesky moths have had a field day. I knit patches to make the invisible repairs, finding wool that matches perfectly. Even I'm sometimes amazed at the miracles that can be performed. People arrive with nothing but a bag of scraps of material and balls of stuffing that were once a special toy. Working with the owner and maybe a treasured photograph, we painstakingly piece toys back together. Older toys have been loved and cuddled for decades, so it's a huge responsibility to get it right. We make sure we are clear on what the customer wants. Old messy stitching might look like it needs unpicking, but it may be treasured because it was done by a family member who has passed away. Sometimes people ask us to keep the smell of their toy because that's what what's evocative for them we'll keep this, the old stuffing as well as adding new so the original smell is still there my own toy lovely bear has had a few inpatient visits i've had him since my very first christmas so he need, needs a little tlc every now and then the toy hospital is so so busy we joke that we have similar waiting times to the nhs 
who look after 200 patients a month who all have their own beds on shelves fixed to the wall, each with a little blanket and pillow. We often send people a picture of their toy tucked up in bed. Our beloved teddies and dolls mean that mean so much that sometimes they even get sent well they even send in get well cards for them. Each toy is discharged with an I've been brave sticker and a return to work slip, explaining that this teddy or doll needs lots of cuddles to make our work complete. So that's leithtoyhospital.co.uk is their their uh, web page if anybody's interested. I've just found I've a friend lent me this book for tonight. I'm sitting here reading it and laughing. I think I've already said I used to be a teacher. I used to be a nursery school teacher and I love, love rhymes. And the children used to love anything on the traditional tales. It was a bit funny. So this is one and it's the nation's favourite comic poems. It's a BBC book, actually, and a selection of humorous verse edited by Griff Rhys Jones. And this poem is by Roald Dahl who I'm sure everybody's heard of as children, very popular children's author. And it's called Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf. It made me chuckle when I read it here. As soon as Wolf began to feel that he would like a decent meal, he went and knocked on Grandma's door. When Grandma opened it, she saw the sharp white teeth, the horrid grin, and Wolfie said, may I come in? Poor Grandmama was terrified. He's going to eat me up, she cried. And she was absolutely right. He ate her up in one big bite. But Grandmama was small and tough and Wolfie wailed, That's not enough. I haven't yet begun to feel that I have had a decent meal. He ran around the kitchen yelping, I've got to have another helping. Then added with a frightful leer, I'm therefore going to wait right here till little Miss Red Riding Hood comes home from walking in the wood. He quickly put on Grandma's clothes. Of course, he hadn't eaten those. He dressed himself in coat and hat. He put on shoes, and after that, he even brushed and curled his hair, then sat himself in Grandma's chair. In came the little girl in red. She stopped, she stared, and then she said, What big ears you have, Grandma. All the better to hear you with, the wolf replied. What big eyes you have, Grandma, said Little Red Riding Hood. All the better to see you with, the wolf replied. He sat there watching her and smiled. He thought, hmm, I'm going to eat this child. Compared with her, oh, Grandmama, <laughs> she's going to taste like caviar. Then Little Red Riding Hood said, but Grandma, what a lovely great big furry coat you have on. That's wrong, cried Wolf. Have you forgot to tell me what big teeth I've got? Oh, well, no matter what you say, I'm going to eat you anyway. The small girl smiles when eyelid flickers. She whisps a pistol from her knickers. She aims it at the creature's head and bang, 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 she shoots him dead. A few weeks later in the wood, I came across Miss Riding Hood. But what a change, no cloak of red, no silly hood upon her head. She said, hello, and do please note my lovely furry wolfskin coat. Right, now, I have told you about, previously, about my love for Pour Down Facebook page, Pour Down Back in the Day. Well, I can tell you I have deviated. <laughs> <laughs> I've discovered Bambridge back in the day. All right. And oh, it's, okay. uh, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's on the same lines of 
I can tell you, it poured down back in the day. I think it's close to 13,000 members now. So it's, <laughs> and it was invented by someone who went to school with me at Killingmain, who, um, when he was sick, decided he'd start a, a basically an old photos page on Facebook for Porter Down, and it sort of exploded on him. He didn't <laughs> realise what he had taken on. Now, the Bambridge one started probably about, well, say it started nine weeks ago or something like that, and it has about 3,000 members. And um, you could argue that the Bambridge one is better behaved. The Porter Down one is good at putting jokes out and things like that. Uh, but yeah, when you think about it, there's only so many pictures of people at Christmas dinners and factories and things that you can put on. Now, the Banbridge one, to its credit, managed to bring something up that I honestly never knew existed. And uh, it used to be we would have gone to the cinema in Banbridge, granted it was in the dark, and we would have turned right after the Banville Hotel onto the Huntley Road because we felt it was a shortcut to the cinema, whether it was or not is another carry-on and the funny thing is I'd say one of my closest friends lives in a row of houses close to that cinema anyway there's the Huntley Road it seems most people know it but did you know there's a head of the Huntley Road and it's basically uh, there is a stone bridge that goes over the river band there and it's got a gargoyle and I must say it is a beautiful gargoyle and um, they're called gods of the river and anybody that's up for it out i actually stopped the other day driving from port down to banbridge to have a look at it of course the sun was shining and everything and i must say it's absolutely beautiful so uh, if anybody fancies a trip out something nice to do maybe on a sunday afternoon it is there i'm going to read out a little bit uh, about what it does and again this is very much uh, words taken off Bambridge back in the day. So it says that the gargoyle, I have to say it's a very nice gargoyle, it's not a scary one. It depicts the river god of the Ban River. Lots of the big rivers in Ireland had river gods. And there are similar sculptures of the Irish river gods on the Customs House on the banks of the Liffey in Dublin. And Edward Smith, a Meath man, designed the ones at the Customs House. The Lena Derg one, that's the head of the Huntley Road, is its as it's affectionately known, it was one of the sculpted years later, but borrows Smith's idea, and it depicts a man, but I think the river, the Ban River deity, should have been a goddess. The river gods are depicted on some of the Irish punt notes as well. And I have to say, I mean, the, the comments that follow it are, you know, a lot of people lived in the area and they didn't even know that it existed. So, and the date on it, I'm assuming the bridge was put in in 1857. It's a stone bridge. And this gargoyle, it's basically a man with a beard and so on. I, I would say it's a bit like Neptune or Nebuchadnezzar, some of those old fellas. And he faces upriver. And wanting to stir the pot, um, I'm now thinking, why doesn't Portadown have one of these on its bridge? Because it's sort of overlooking the park and everything. So maybe Portadown is missing out on a trick and <laughs> needs to get a gargoyle. <laughs> God knows how many years that bridge at the River Ban has been up. But you can, maybe my mother would be saying, well, I've done this long without one of those old boys. We don't need it. No, we can do without it now. Right, we're going to have our song of the week, and it's Hello, Mary Lou 
from Ricky Nelson. So I hope you enjoyed that piece of music. Uh, we're back to Jackie here, and I've got a, a different magazine now, not Ireland's own. This time it's Women's Weekly. I'm stepping out. And this caught my eye because it's a lady who has written a bit saying, I spent a year on a desert island. And inside, it, it talks about she escaped the desert island. So one woman shares the extraordinary life she, she and her husband had on the Galapagos. So... When June Nelson married her husband, Brian, in 1960, she didn't expect to end up cast away on a desert island. Brian was a zoology student, and they spent three years studying gannets on the Bass Rock, an island in Scotland. Cramped in a garden shed, crouched in fish-stinking mud, wasn't the early years of married life that she had envisaged. So when Brian was offered the funding to study the tropical booby bird 600 miles off the coast of Ecuador, they were delighted. The trip would mean them spending a year in isolation on two inhabited islands in the Galapagos. I was really excited, said June. We'd only been to Europe. So with no mobiles, computers or grasp of Spanish, planning was difficult. We had no idea what it would be like. She says, we worried we wouldn't have enough food. What would happen if one of us had an accident? There was no radio communication. So they'd filled ten large chests with notebooks, cameras, clothes, tools, cooking and camping equipment, a device to distill fresh water, tinned food, dried food, 24 packets of mints, a typewriter, a sieve and a pair of knitting needles. I'm not sure what you're going to do with the knitting needles, but anyway. 
In November 1963, they set sail on the Queen Elizabeth from Southampton to New York. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship ground to a halt due to force 11 gales. Then, when they got to New York, President Kennedy was shot and the city went into mourning. Six weeks later, on the 28th of December, they arrived at their destination, the island of Tower, now called Genovesa. It was mostly lava with a bit of dried scrub, recalls June. It looked pretty desolate, but the island did have a beautiful beach. June was just privileged to be there, even though there wasn't a palm tree in sight. Alone with their tent, a shotgun and ten wooden chests, they set up camp and settled down for the night. We savoured that moment, she said. It wasn't long before they were interrupted by stealthy scrapings and scratchings on the canvas. First land crabs, then giant centipedes a foot long with powerful claws. Brian had a thing about earwigs. And when we got those out there and found these centipedes ten times the size, he wasn't pleased, she said. They had a poisonous bite, but didn't kill you. Brian stuffed socks in the holes and wedged a shoe against the flap, but the centipede still crawled in. The Galapagos had all wildlife, from iguanas, geckos, dolphins and racer snakes to giant tortoises weighing 200 pounds. Aside from millions of birds, they also encountered sea lions, fur seals and sharks, which to their relief were harmless. Washing their clothes in themselves in seawater took its toll, so they gave up wearing clothes. Brian drew the line at only wearing boots, says June. It was nothing or shoes and shorts. I wore a straw hat, sunglasses, shoes and a neck scarf. Not for elegance, but to stop sunburn. They got on well and worked a lot, checking over 150 nests before breakfast. June baked bread and cakes and kept on top of housework, sweeping the tent's ground sheet with an old toothbrush. For fun, they'd swim in the lagoon and go on boat trips. There was a nearby creek and they found a big log, so we'd paddle down the creek and the logs, she says. In the evenings, we'd dance in the sand and listen to Radio Belize. They even managed to get Wimbledon tennis results. A lower relief boat turned up occasionally, supplies dwindled, and by the time they reached the second island, Hood, now called Española, their, their food was full of weevils and maggots. <laughs> Hood was cold, wet and cloudy, and Brian wasn't in good health, suffering from headaches, swellings, leg sores and mouth ulcers. He struggled to sleep. June, apart from the occasional stomach ache, was fine. Then one day, they received contact that Prince Philip would be making an unofficial visit to photograph wildlife in the Galapagos, and he would be arriving to meet them in person on the Royal Yacht Britannia. After the initial shock, June's biggest worry was what to wear. We were both barefoot and smelt fusty, she said. Brian's shorts were streaked with seabird vomit, albatross oil and rotten fish. June's shorts, though not as bad, were too short. Rummaging through the chest, she found a pair of smart green ski pants and a black sweater she'd worn on the, jersey, uh, the journey out. Brian refused to put on a lounge suit, so he patched up his old sweater. Britannia arrived at 8am sharp and Prince Philip disembarked. They spent four memorable hours looking at albatrosses, mockingbirds and blue-footed boobies, among other wildlife. He was absolutely charming, says June. Then they were invited on board Britannia for lunch and had use of a guest suite so they could have a wash. 
Prince Philip turned his attention to me during the meal, but I was too busy of thinking of answers to his questions to enjoy the food. After going on to study seabirds in Peru, Christmas Island and New Zealand, they returned to the UK and settled in Aberdeen. Brian published his books Galapagos Islands of Birds in 1968 and had a successful career before he died in 2015, aged 83. June has been telling her 12-year-old grandson stories of their Robinson Crusoe adventures for years. And after reading her own letters and Brian's diaries, following interest from a publisher, she realised there was a lot more to tell. So now, at 85, she's written her own recollections and incorporated less scientific accounts from Island of Birds and dedicated the book to Brian, an extraordinary man who took her on an even more extraordinary adventure. It's fascinating. And Reetha's got a bit about some extraordinary animals too, I think. Well, Jackie, yours were very exotic, uh, far flung. We are going back in time with this article. It's the reintroduction of bison in England, just to roam about free. As the sun rose over South East England, three bison emerged from a corral into a new woodland home as part of an ambitious project to transform the natural environment. The trio immediately began munching birch tree leaves in the ancient woods near Canterbury to restore and manage the area with their behaviour and minimal human interference. It marks the first time in millennia that the European bison, the continent's largest land mammal and the closest living relative to ancient steppe bison, will live in wild conditions in Ireland, in, in Britain. It's a really momentous occasion today. Mark Haben of the Wildwood Trust which is leading the five-year conservation project, said. It couldn't have gone any better. They took a glance back, looked at us and disappeared into the woodlands, he added moments after the release. The female bison, one matriarch and two younger cows, will now graze, eat bark, fell trees and take so-called dust baths, churning up the ground in the woods. This creates a multitude of benefits, helping other species forage habitats as the bison, become the perfect ecosystem engineers. We're doing this to restore the environment and restore native English woodland and everything that thrives in and around that kind of habitat, explained Mr Haben, saying it was critically important. We don't want to be using machinery, using native resources, ecosystem engineers as we like to call them, in the form of this case in in the form in this case, the European bison is exactly the right thing to do. The female bison, which arrived after living on smaller enclosures in Ireland and the Scottish Highlands, will be joined by a bull at the site, owned by the Kent Wildlife Trust charity in the coming months. The bull's arrival from Germany was delayed due to Britain's post-Brexit bureaucracy for importing animals. The herd will initially have 55 hectares of fenced-in woodland to roam, with, to roam within before their habit habitable space is eventually increased to 200 acres hectares 400 over 400 acres they're going to have a right size of a home mm-hmm. <laughs> it is hoped the bull will breed with the females to increase the size of the herd with a Kent site licensed to hold up to 20 the bison will all will also soon be joined by other grazing animals including pony, ponies from Exmoor southwest England iron age pigs and longhorn cattle which which will aid the bid to create a variety of natural habitats. This is a model for what we would hope 
could be rolled out in much more broadly could be rolled out much more broadly across the UK to similar landscapes utilising bison. I like to think that bison, the bison we, we bred on this project, by the time they reach maturity, there'll be other projects looking to do the same kind of thing. And we can move bison around continue to continue this really amazing work that these animals are going to do. After roaming the continent for millennia, the last wild European bison became extinct on the continent in 1927 due to hunting and habitat loss. However, 50 animals remained in captive collections, which have provided the basis for an extensive and intensive breeding programme, according to the project's conservationists. The trio, now calling the Kent Woodland Home, are some of their descendants. The bison that we've selected are part of the European Endangered Species Breeding Programme, says Haben. We selected the animals based on their genetics, but also their location and source of origin was very important. Another central aim of the Habitat Re- Restoration pro- Project, costing £1.1 million and largely funded by donors, is to help British ecosystems cope with climate change and severe biodiversity loss. The bison's impact will gradually alter the forest away from a monoculture and create wetter areas that will store carbon, reducing emissions, driving up temperatures while also reducing flood risk. In a sign of the stakes, the release coincides with heatwaves sweeping all parts of Europe that is set to break Britain's all-time temperature record early this week. Mr Haben calls the coincidence extremely relevant. It's an incredible story really that we're releasing bison to help restore ecosystems which will help restore the environment and hopefully have some impact on climate change so bison doing their business right we've got something here about um, the hot weather and how to treat pets now this is from a veterinary practice and it says during the warm weather it is advised to walk your dogs in the early morning or late evening when the temperature is more cool. Exercise is the most common (coughs) I beg your pardon (laughs) trigger for heat related illness. Ensure your pets have plenty of water and shade all day. Take extra care with flat faced overweight older and unwell pets as they are all at an increased rate risk of heat stroke. Do the five second tarmac test and ground surfaces as it can get very hot in the sun and could burn pets' paws. Check the ground surface of your hands for five seconds. If it's too hot for you, then it will be too hot for your pets. Never leave your pets in a hot car. In as little as 20 minutes, a dog could die in a hot car. Winding down a window is just not enough. If you see a dog in distress, uh, dial 999 immediately. And heat wave reminder, 22 degrees outside is 47 degrees inside a car. Uh, Did you know that artificial grass in the sun can reach 60 degrees C? Artificial grass in the shade can reach 34 degrees. Real grass in the sun can reach 38 degrees. Real grass in the shade can reach around 27 degrees. That's a good one about artificial grass. It's Mm -hmm. basically hot plastic. You wouldn't think of that. Please take care of your pets and family members when enjoying the warm weather, especially if you have fake grass. Check your pet's feet. And again, the five second hot paw test, which mm-hmm. we've told you about. No dog has ever died from missing one walk, but dogs have died from one walk in the heat and don't take the risk. Spotting heat exposure 
keep your rabbit cool, summer hydrate, uh, put the water out, and how to protect your pet from the sun, uh, well it's shade, so spotting heat, exposure, drooling, a rapid pulse or heartbeat, excessive lethargy, a lack of coordination, vomiting or diarrhea. And that's from a veterinary practice. It's basically my cousin works in it. Now, if I, can I left my dog this evening trying to um, eat an ice cube. Mm -hmm. I'd, put, I'd left her water and put ice cubes in and she sort of had looked at them very suspiciously. So I gave her one so she was licking, chasing it around the kitchen licking the ice cube. <laughs> so that's how she's keeping cool. I uh, haven't seen the cats. They're outside somewhere under a hedge, uh -huh. finding their own cool spot. Indeed. Uh, right now, I've got something about it. I have to say, every so often you, you find out something that you didn't know. Um, and basically, there's been a business called Black Point Perfumes in Woodhouse Street um, for 12 years. And they sell, in the nicest possible sense, uh, fake perfumes. And Do the address it? is too little. Acorns, it's basically a courtyard on the right as you walk from the town down Woodhouse uh -huh, Street. Yeah. And the girl that works there now, it's open a Friday and a Saturday, I think it's about 10 o'clock to about 5 o'clock. So I went into it on Saturday for the first time and I said to the girl, you know, I honestly didn't know that they were there. And she said, been there for 12 years. But what's happened is the area seems to be getting run down. There was diarrhea on the footpath when I went down on Saturday morning. Uh. And she said that ladies, basically her target audience was ladies in their 40s and they just didn't want to go into that shop anymore. Mm -hmm. And they, a lot of people were ordering it online. And you know, you bought, if you order two bottles of perfume, you get free postage. So it basically, you got a, there's a long list of perfumes, and you know I'm saying the ones that are probably close to eighty pounds in your favourite chemist or department store. You'll pick up a, you know they'll have a numbered C one one two or whatever, and you'll get it for anywhere between ten and twenty five pounds. Now my, I have to say, I, the one I bought seems to be good, um, but my experience with fake perfumes previously and it's probably 20 years since I've bought them and uh, the ones I bought previously were had more ravishing packaging and so on yeah but they went off after about six months right and uh, so if you do buy them now I'm not saying that black point will be the same um, they, they do plain packaging and their perfumes are they say are from Turkey so it's something to be aware of they say that they're going to be moving to premises in Lisbon good. Over to you. Right, I have another bit here out of Ireland's own and it's just a memory. It's about a summer day by Liam Callaghan. And it's about digging some peat and doing a bit of fishing. So, summer day. In the bog this morning, fitting the turf, we went in the horse and cart, rattling down the long bumpy track, four gates to open and close before we came to our bank. My father, two of my older sisters and myself. "'Twas a good year for the turf. "'It wasn't always. "'Sometimes you got a bad bank, "'maybe a great twisted piece of bog oak "'buried across it, "'or you might meet the underlying water early. "'Not this year. "'There was a great scatter of sods, "'the lighter coloured ones from the top of the bog "'on the heathery high bank. "'The better black turf closely packed on the lower bank, "'all cut by hand with the sling, "'barrowed away and spread out to dry.' 
We piled out and my dad, my father tied the horse to one of the sally bushes that grew along the side of the bog. He picked up a few sods, examined them and said, "'Tis fine. We'll go up and foot the high bank. The three of you work away down here,' he said. "'We'll be home in time for the dinner.'" Apparently there are many ways to foot turf, but we always used the same method. Four sods and end tilted towards one another, one sod across the ends to keep them in place, two more on edge across that, and one more on the flat on the top, eight sods. We were all fast, expert with years of experience and different degrees of motivation. My father was in no hurry, but seemed to get through more work than any of us. My sisters disliked the bog and wanted to be out of there. I was just trying to outdo my sisters as usual. We were finished by 12 and as we turned the horse for home, we left behind us a small city of miniature castles standing to dry in the sun, dry enough to burn and keep us warm throughout through the coming winter. I went fishing after the dinner. My equipment was basic enough, all from a stall at the fair at Barraskin. Bamboo rod, a basic grass-coloured reel, ten-pound line, some hooks. I dug a few worms in the headland of the near field, stored them in a moss-filled jam jar and set off. There was always a decision to be made when I got to the bridge. Upstream for the big trout, but they were scarce enough. Downstream for the smaller ones and an almost certain catch. Big ones today, I thought, and made my way up along the riverbank through my uncle's fields, up to where the whitethorn bushes bent low over the slow-moving deep pools. Got into one of my favourite places, close by the edge of the stream, baited my hook, cast the worm out into the current and paid out some 20 yards of line. Sat and waited quietly. A kingfisher sped by, bees hummed, a water hen clucked contentedly somewhere in the rushes along the bank. Small white and pink petals shed from the thorn bushes floated by in the lazy current. A soft breeze shushed through the bushes, rippling the water, and the wild water lilies nodded their yellow heads. I gave it an hour and went home, empty-handed but not unhappy. There was hurling training after tea. I cycled to the village, my hurley wedge between the bars of my bike. I changed it from side to side every now and again to keep it from developing a permanent bend. <laughs> we trained in Hogan's Field, running around the field five times and doing some jumping jacks exercises before we were allowed to have a match. Back and forward, hammer and tongs for an hour. I was a nice hurler. To this day, I'm not sure whether that was a compliment or otherwise, but I usually got my place in the team and even once scored a point from right half back. Hot and sweaty after the hurling, I went for ice cream. This could be a bit of a gamble. The ice cream block was divided into 12 sections, all priced at twopence, the full block being two shillings. There was a special piece of equipment to mark out the block. A fourpenny one was two of these slices and a sixpenny one was three, and the biggest you could buy. There were two shops in the village that sold ice cream. In one, the shopkeeper cut straight and threw down through the blocks. You always got exactly what you paid for. However, in the other shop, there was a good chance that the vertical cut could wander off course. What began as a four, fourpenny one at the top could either be a fivepenny one or threepenny one at the bottom, depending on deviation. Today, I gambled and did well. I sat for a while in the steps by the pump, chatting to my teammates and ate my angular fourpenny ice cream. As I cycled home, the setting sun threw long shadows in the road in front of me. Windows of the houses in the hills gleamed gold. 
Glancing back as I turned in my gate, the sun sat like a blazing red ball on the horizon. Another good day tomorrow. I put my bike in the shed and went in. That sounds like an idyllic memory of a summer day, doesn't it? Very nice, indeed, yeah. Would you like to hear another one of these uh, poems? Oh, of course. This one here is uh, called Curl Up and Diet. <laughs> it's by Ogden Nash, and he is he's an American writer who's really quite funny. So, some ladies smoke too much, and some ladies drink too much, and some ladies pray too much. But all ladies think that they weigh too much. They may be as slender as a sylph or a dryad, but just let them get in the scales and they embark on a doleful jeremiad. No matter how low the figure the needle happens to touch, they always claim it is at least five pounds too much. To the world she may appear slinky and feline, but she inspects herself in the mirror and cries, Oh, I look like a sea lion. Yes, she tells you she is growing into the shape of a sea cow or manatee. And if you say no, my dear, she says you're just lying to make her feel better. And if you say yes, my dear, you injure her vanity. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a girl more beautiful and witty and charming than tongue can tell. And she is now a dangerous raving, raving man maniac in a padded cell. The first indication her friends and relatives had that she was mentally overwrought was one day when she said, I weigh 127, which is exactly what I ought. Oh, often I am haunted by the thought that someone might discover a diet that would let ladies reduce just as much as they wanted because I wonder if there's a woman in the world strong-minded enough to shed 10 pounds or 20 and say, now there, that's plenty. And I fear one £10 loss would only arouse the craving for another, so it wouldn't do any good for ladies to get their ambition and look like someone's 14-year-old brother. Because having accomplished this with ease, they would next want to look like someone's 14-year-old brother in the final stages of some obscure disease. The more success you have, the more you want to get of it. So then their goal would be to look like somebody's 14-year-old brother's ghost, or rather not the ghost itself, which is fairly solid, but a silhouette of it. So I think it isn't very nice for ladies to be lithe and lissom, but not so much that you cut yourself if you happen to embrace or kiss him. <laughs> and what year was that? Does it tell you? It doesn't, no. Ogden Nash lived from 1902 to 1971. Right. So it's from quite a while ago. It's before Instagram and... Oh, yes, and, and all... Oh, yes, yes, way before all that. Yes, indeed. This book's fascinating. Right, well, I think... Have you anything else to read? I mean, we're... we're our, our, our is up. So I was saying goodbye for myself, John Harkness. And goodbye from me, Jackie McLaughlin. And me, Rita Flavelle Robinson. So take care to... And stay cool. And... We'll read you something about McCready's roses the next time, but meanwhile, we'll promise you a rose garden. <laughs> Could promise you things like big diamonds.
Gotta be a little rain sometime. I- 